Hey, remember me? I'm Pastor Sean, glad that you're here. I'm thankful to be back and thankful that I can bring God's word this morning. God is gracious to us all and thankful that we could gather in his word. If you would, turn your copy of God's word to Exodus chapter 7. It is page 51 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along to the uh, text that I will be reading from. Um, I, I think that the pastors just got together uh, while I was on sabbatical. They thought it was really funny. They said, you know what, pastor's been off, so we're just going to give him three chapters to cover when he gets back. Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, maybe Colin was behind that because I made him preach on circumcision. Uh, so maybe he just said, here, you know, you got to take all this. But um, uh, plus, I've been on sabbatical, so I have about three hours, I want to say. So just uh, buckle up. I've been waiting to preach for a while, so no, I'm just kidding. Uh, some of you are like, run, pretend you got to go to the bathroom. Uh, so uh, today we're going to be looking at the plagues and the God's judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt. And we don't have time to go into, I, I've read so much, I'd love to give you all the, the detail and, and that would be great for another time and another day if we could go through it a little bit slower. But we're going to look at kind of a 10,000 foot view of what God meant and what God did through the plagues against Egypt. And today we're going to look at how the Lord strikes. So we're going to read just the first 13 verses of chapter 7 and then some other passages as we go along. The Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh, Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh tells you perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh called his wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we come to your word and may we not be hard-hearted today. God, by your spirit, speak the truth you need each person to hear today. May we all be in wonder at your mighty nature, and may we fall deeply more in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm dating myself just a little bit. I remember uh, the first Iraq war, and I remember one of the military briefs that became famous 
when Norman Schwarzkopf came on the, the screen and he showed uh, a video, I guess from a drone or, or early drone or from flight cameras or something that he, he said, you see this bunker? And he said, you see this door the size of a regular door? Well, watch us put a, a rocket right through this. It's an early bu bunker buster rocket. And, and watch us with precision hit it from many miles away. And you're like, that, that's not going to happen. They're going to miss it. And sure enough, as the reel goes on, it literally goes through the door and it implodes from the inside out. And it's just like, I mean, as a, you know, I was probably a teenager then. It was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I mean, that is the most awesome thing. And when you think about that, I'm not here to argue the, you know, the, the just warness of, the, of the, first, uh, uh, the first battle in Iraq. I'm not here to say one way or the other. But as a person just looking objectively, the military might that was on display that way on that, on that day was overwhelming. And, and partly, there was a purpose behind that. There was a, a purpose to show this is what we're about to do, but it also served as a warning. The warning being to both Iraq and all of America's enemies, don't mess with us. That, that was ultimately the whole reason for that display on public television. I believe in some ways, as we look at the plagues and how God brought judgment on Egypt and Pharaoh, it was a clarion call to the whole world and all of time, don't mess with Yahweh, the one true God. If you want to see might, look at my might. Look at my authority. Look at my power. And all gods, all magicians, all leaders will find out that they are no match for me. See, it was this display that God showed his sovereignty over all things, over all leaders of the world, over all of history, that no one can come against God and ultimately say no. No one can say that when God is going to move, that he is not going to move. And in this passage, we see that God strikes against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians and Israel's enemy to display his authority and so that the whole world would see and that we would ultimately trust him. In these verses, I want us to see why the Lord strikes against Egypt and there's three reasons that the Lord strikes here. Number one, the Lord strikes to show he is the one and only true God. The Lord strikes to show he is the only true God. See, God has already sent Moses, if we read back in chapter 5, that Moses and Aaron had spoke to Pharaoh about letting his people go into the wilderness three days for a festival to worship him. And here again in chapter 7, God has sent Moses and Aaron to go back and tell Pharaoh, look, there is a request, a demand from the Lord God to let his people go. And in chapter 5, verse 3, Moses actually warned, God may send plagues for your disobedience. Well, here we are at the cusp of chapter 7. 
Moses goes, God says, this is what I'm going to do. And from chapter 7 to verse chapter 10, actually into verse 12, we see all 10, all 10 plagues that God sends against Egypt. First, the Nile gets turned into blood. Then frogs come in all over the land. It says that their beds are even covered with frogs, that gnats are swarmed and coming from Southwest Virginia. I hate gnats and I can't even imagine gnats that are so thick you can barely breathe because they are, there are so many of them. Flies that, that uh, come over the land, uh, uh, livestock, boils, hail, Locusts, I mean, come on, we just had cicadas. We kind of get an understanding of how, if you multiply that by a couple million, how bad those things would be flying away. And then finally, darkness over the land, no, not finally, uh, darkness over the land, and then finally, the death of the firstborn. As we look at this, we understand that any time that there is a sign and wonder that God does, or Christ does, whether the Old or the New Testament we consider those signs and wonders. And what does that mean? Well, that theologically means that there's two reasons that this happens. It's not just, okay, God wants to, what, a, what am I gonna show off and do? What, what special effect would it be cool when someone reads the Bible later? No, there is a purpose for the sign and wonder, and it's twofold. One, to verify the messenger that God has sent. And then secondly, there is a specific purpose that God does the sign and wonder, or Christ does the sign and wonder. So what was the purpose of this sign and wonder? Well, it was very clear that God was distinguishing himself as the one true triune God who is the creator of all things, who has authority over all things, and it distinguishes himself from all the false gods and religions of Egypt as well as the rest of the world. God is always, always, always jealous of his name. He is clear to say, I am the one true God and there is none like me and in your very hearts there should be none like me. The first commandment is what? Have no other gods beside me. And God comes up against someone, Pharaoh, who believes that he is a God, that he is the incarnation of a God. He who is a Pharaoh, they believe, was a God incarnate who would rule and bring peace over his people. He was shown to be someone who is majestic, who was is shown by the, the, uh, even the serpent animal uh, as, as his symbol, that he was all-powerful and all-knowing over the world. And, and he said and made the worst mistake, this God of Moses is nothing to me. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. This could be filed under famous last words <laughs> or the biggest mistake of your life, Which, whichever one you want to clarify this as, because it showed that he had no, uh, he had no regard for who God was and that he would ever obey him. And so God said, okay, 
if you're going to disobey me, I am going to humble you and all your little puny gods that you say are real to show that only I am the true God. And so through every element and every plague that comes, we can read and go through it. I won't have time to go through all of them. Each one of them are plucking off one of the beliefs or one of the gods that the Egyptians believed in. The first one being the Nile turning into blood. The, the Nile was understood to be the source of life and, and, of, um, uh, and, and the God was named Happy. And in this, they were to believe it to be fertility, that everything of life, both uh, of, of agriculture and of human life were to come from the Nile. And so what did God do? He made it like blood, that it stunk as death, it says, that, that what was life was now death. And what was interesting was the magicians came and said, oh, we can do that too. And they did that. I mean, they might have a problem. I mean, they might get an idea. They didn't reverse it. They just kept the death going. And it showed that God was bringing death and judgment on Egypt. Uh, one of the other ones, the goddess named Heket, was pictured with a head of a, uh, sometimes of a body of a frog. This again was a, a, a population that they would believe that fertility of life, that this who assisted women in childbirth. And here, what happened? That the frogs came and covered everything. That he, when uh, they sent Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh said, Moses asked God to, to stop this. He, he said, okay, I stopped it, but what was left? A bunch of piles of dead frogs. I mean, they just were, they didn't know what to do with it. It was piled over everywhere. Again, God showing that he had power over their gods. And then and the next to the last uh, plague, the Egyptians regarded Amun-Ra, which was the king god. Where, where they personified in was the sun. That the sun, Amun-Ra, would come and he would rise in, the, uh, rise in the morning and he would show creation and that he would rule and be a creator of the world. And then uh, over darkness, he would de descend into death. And that again, the next day, he would come back up giving creation and life and that this God was to be pleased. But what did God do then? He knocked him out. Darkness for three days. God says, no matter what or you think you believe in or what gods you bow down to, he is or she is nothing compared to me. And they're not real. In chapter 7, we read here, the staff is kind of introduced here at the beginning. Because when Moses and Aaron throw down the staff and the miracle uh, of the staff turning into a serpent, so the Pharaoh is always trying to match God and he, and he can't quite. And, and the magicians come and they throw down their staffs and say, look, and it says, according to their occult practices, well, it could be an illusion, just like David Copperfield, or it could be some satanic power that they did that. But what in the end happened? The serpent rod of Moses and Aaron swallowed the rest of them. And this was a sign to say, Hey, you Pharaoh who thinks you're God. Hey, you and all your little gods. Just as I have said in Genesis, the serpent's head's going to be crushed and it's going to be crushed by me. 
Because I am the one true God. Clear through all these three chapters, the plagues God intended to show that he is the true God. Exodus 7, 17. This is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch, I'm about to strike the Nile with my staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. Exodus 8, 10. Tomorrow, he answered. Moses replied, as you have said, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus 8, 22. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way, you know that I, the Lord, am in the land. Exodus 9, 14. For this time, I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people, then you will know there is no one like me in the whole earth. Exodus 9, 16. However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show that you my power and to take my name known to the whole earth. Moses said to him in Exodus 9, 29, when I have left the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth belongs to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we should tremble as we read these words. Because this is not some false god of a Nile. This is not some golden calf. This is not some uh, a regional uh, belief system. This is Yahweh, the one true God. And we should tremble knowing that there is no one like him. Just as it is prevalent in our culture today, we must speak and see to the world, a world that believes there are many other deities. There are many other salvations. There are other little g-gods that they believe in. But just as God had claimed there in Egypt, and as he has claimed continuously and throughout time, as even Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, there is only but one God that we will kneel to. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, but only Yahweh, the one true God. You know, it's interesting, later on, even after all this, Israel, if you kind of fast forward many chapters, even I think it's in Numbers, it is written that it says that Israel remembered the gods of Egypt and worshipped some of them. I mean, this was after they saw all the plagues. This is after God ushered them through salvation through the parting of the Red Sea. This is after God followed, uh, led them with a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke in the day, that God had given them manna to eat and given them uh, water to drink, all these things that God, to show that he is the one true God. They remembered these little gods and still tried to worship these little gods that God had basically run off any reason to follow them. And we, in our time, sit back and sometimes, oh, pity those little Israelites. How 
Oh, look how simple-minded they were. Look how they, they worshipped these other gods. Shouldn't they have known better? Brother and sister, shouldn't we know better today? Shouldn't we stop making idols that we worship? Shouldn't we in the same way stop creating little g-gods that we put our hope and faith in? Single person today, you might put your hope in the God of marriage. That maybe that you find that perfect spouse, that everything is going to somehow magically work out. And that you give everything over, hoping to find that one person that's going to make it right. That you bow down to this idea that is going to happen, that drives you sometimes to excuse sin in that person. Oh, but God wants me to be with someone. I know that they're not following God. I, I know that they're sinning. I know that, I know that there's something going on that God would not be happy with. But I just need to be with this person. You go to the point of following this, this idea that you would be to the point of spiritually, spiritually unequally yoked. That you think that this is going to solve your problems. Parents, you look to your children to become the, the God that you find your salvation in. That, that their success or what they do will somehow cover over the failures of your life. Or maybe that you put your children in such a high esteem that they run the family, that whatever they're about, that that's what the family is then about, and that, and that, that you follow what's going on with them, that, it, that your family becomes so disjointed that, that it no longer sees time with the Lord is important. That spiritual conversations are few and far between. And church is just an option if we have time. Brother, sister, I'd encourage you to ask and search your hot heart today. Which God will you serve? Will it be the one true God? Or the one that you have falsely set up in your heart? Secondly, the Lord strikes to show the results of disobedience to God. The Lord strikes to show the results of disobedience to God. If you could fast forward a few pages to Exodus 9:34. I just want to read just a few verses there. 9:34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned against again and hardened his heart. He and his officials so Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the Israelites go as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs, and my, uh, signs of mine among them, so that you may tell your son and grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them. 
and you will know that I am the Lord. We, we know that God struck with the plagues ultimately because of Pharaoh's disobedience and ultimately to show that God was who he says he was. You know, another Hebrew word most of the time for plague was davir, but here, but one of the words in Hebrew for plague was negah, which meant to strike. And here in these words, we see the intention to cause harm. God strikes at the sin of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people for disobeying his word. This is interesting because throughout the passage, we see that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh and his people are hardening their own hearts. And when people read this, they, they kind of try to find a soft middle. They try to say, oh, well, God hardened his heart because he knew how Pharaoh was going to act. And so he just did that knowing, knowing in the future that this is what was going to happen. And so this is how we all make it make sense. But the text doesn't say that. The text say, says or reads that Pharaoh hardened his heart, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Both of them come together and they do not negate each other. As a matter of fact, it's a matter of mystery and understanding that we don't fully know, but we know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart on purpose because he said to know that we, that he is God. You know, Paul reads back into this and we, uh, one of the ways that we can read the Bible well is that we let scripture interpret scripture. And Paul reads back to this and helps us to see that this truth about God's sovereignty over the human heart is, is not atypical, but actually typical in life. Romans 9, 17 through 18 says, for the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Brothers and sisters, this comes to a very important truth that God is never implicit in instigating or causing sin, but he is, a, uh, uh, he is not required from keeping us from having what we desire if it is sinful. Paul makes this very point that ultimately God will allow our desires to go knowing that in it he will dis be displayed. If we're an unbeliever and we're following after sin and death, that he will give, himself, give us over to that. That's the idea of Romans chapter one, right? That God says he gives them over to their disbelief and their sin and that they fall away from him. But in the same way, God comes to those of us who are believers and sometimes allows us to harden our hearts that we might receive the consequence of sin that ultimately he would use to draw us back to him. But here in this instant, we see that God both hardened the heart of Pharaoh and allowed him to continue on to his desires to, to come to the, his ultimate downfall at the Red Sea. This cycle of hardening is a witness of count of Pharaoh's heart is also not limited to unbelievers. While a Christian cannot ultimately sin to the point of us being outside the kingdom of God, 
we can unfortunately fall prey to the sin cycle of hardening our own hearts till it's calcified before God. That we, we allow sin to fester and rule over us. We don't hear the word of God when God is speaking to us. We, we excuse sin. We excuse things in our lives. When this happens in our lives, we often bear severe consequences. And we might even build up a, a tolerance to a particular sin. We might think that that sin was just a glance. But over time, we might find we have hardened our hearts to the things of God. You know, it's fitting, I believe, how the structure of these plagues were. Remember how I said that the Nile was a source of life, that the sun was a source of life? Isn't that how we approach sin sometimes? That we come to something and we think that it's going to give us life. It's exciting and it's something new. And ultimately it's going to bring us happiness. But what's the end result? Stinkiness, death, and darkness. And brother, sister, I encourage you today to consider that maybe you're in a sin that is dangerous in your life. All sin is dangerous because sin separates us from God. Sin brings judgment and wrath against us just as he strikes against Egypt and strikes against their sin. He strikes against all sin. And brothers and sisters, maybe you're here today just by God's plan for you to hear this. Stop sinning against God and his word. It's killing you. It's killing you. Maybe you need to hear this today. Maybe you thought it was one glance at the screen that you shouldn't have looked at. Maybe you thought it was one late night out. Maybe it was one drink, one hit, one stolen file, one bet, one time telling your parents a lie. And now all those things have become a pattern. Brothers and sisters, you're on the road of destruction. And you need to run away. You need to come back to God. You need to understand that it's not healthy. And here's the good news for you. That if you're a believer today, you must just confess. And God will grant you mercy. Some of you are in a sin that it's going to take some time to walk out of. But, but when you do and while you're walking, you're going to walk hand in hand with a merciful God who is mighty to save. He will walk with you every step. While hard-hearted unbelievers like Pharaoh are often given over to their sinful desires, God never allows his children to spiral relentlessly downward to their own sinfulness. You will be met with the Spirit of God, and he may be whispering right now in your life. And you need to hear him and obey 
As we think through this, God is striking against sin so that they might turn away each time, every time. God is saying, Pharaoh, stop, change your mind. Listen, you have an opportunity to do what I say time and time again. But each time Pharaoh disobeys, God strikes against sin. May this be a warning to us in our lives that God strikes against sin. And as we read through this and we think of these plagues, we don't see much good news here. But can I show you some? Can we go underneath and see it? It's there. It's got to look a little bit. Number three, God strikes to show his loving kindness and mercy towards his people. God strikes to show his loving kindness and mercy towards his people. Even in the midst of the carnage and the chaos These three chapters show repeatedly that God is saving his people. He didn't stop. He didn't say, oh, Pharaoh said no. We'll have to come up with a different plan. We're going to have to do something different. Hey, Israel, I know I told you you're going to the promised land. I don't know what I'm going to do here. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board. No, God said, I have a plan And it's going to be hard and I'm going to be on display. But as I am doing this, you will be saved. And even in the midst of this, God is showing mercy. In five of the ten plagues, God shows deference to Israel and not Egypt. That Israel doesn't have flies. They don't lose their firstborn that we'll read about uh, in the coming weeks. We will see that God protects his people. And some people will say, well, we read this and say, well, actually God did this in every plague. Well, I don't know that he only said that in five. So whichever way though, God is protecting and showing mercy to his people. And it displays again what we see that Paul helps us to see all the more in Romans chapter nine, verse 14 and 16. Maybe this would be the question they were asking. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? <laughs> is the Israelites saying, hey, all this stuff is happening sometimes to us too? Is Pharaoh the one that's disobeying? Why is all this going on? Absolutely not, Paul says. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort but on the God who shows mercy. And this is where we come with the good news. That you may be sinking deep in sin. Or you may be caught up in some sin. But the good news, it's not based on your effort that you might be saved. But on the goodness of a merciful God. A God who sent his son to live a perfect life. To die on the cross in the place of our sins. And raised him to life. So that those who believe on him will have forgiveness of sin. And the promise of eternity and salvation in his name. So Christian, if you have found yourself that you have created an idol 
that is in control of your heart or that you have found yourself to be hard-hearted and chasing after sin. Look up to the God who's a God of mercy and loving kindness and who loves you. Unbeliever, it's not too late for you today. God is saving. God is a saving God. God is a mighty God. God is the one who saves as we sang today. And as the Bible says that all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and that they repent and turn from their sins and turn from turn to God, they will be saved. Brothers and sisters, this is a story of a merciful, loving God. It's interesting because in the midst of this, towards the end, throughout Pharaoh is like negotiating with God and Moses. And he's like, uh, Moses says, hey, Pharaoh, let all the people come out to the wilderness to have a festival and worship God. And first Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let the men go worship and the women and children have to stay here. (laughs) And God says to to through Moses, uh, 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 all my people will be free. He goes back and says, uh, hey, let the people go. And Pharaoh says, okay, well, the men, women, and children, they can go worship, but their livestock and everything else has to stay here. Well, what's he trying to do? He's trying to control, right? They have to go. They can't have provisions. They can't have their self. He's trying to keep them in and, and what does God say? Well, he says in Exodus 10, 26, even our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind because we will take some of them to worship the Lord our God. We will, we will not know what we will use to the worship the Lord until we get there. That kind of sounds like a throwaway line, right? But I see it as a line of hope of a merciful God. To those of us who might be overwhelmed by the world, who might be stuck in some sin, who might not think that God could ever love us, God will save whom he saves for sure. Not one will be left behind. Spurgeon observed, Hence, I think that all he came to purpose to save, he will save. All who were engraved on the strong affections of his heart as the purchase of his blood, he will assuredly have. All that his heavenly father gave him will come to him. All that he chose from before the foundation of the world will rise up on the last day. All who were included among the members of his mystic body when he was nailed to the tree will be one with him in the glorious resurrection. Not a hoof will be left behind. Brothers and sisters, if you're a believer today, you are meeting and know that you can rest in a merciful God who will raise you on that last day. Despite your mistakes, despite your failures, despite your sin, an unbeliever, if you cry out to God today, you can be assured he is a God 
who is mighty to save. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for what you have done on display in the earth, that, that for ramifications for centuries and thousands of years, people know that you are the one true God, that you are mighty to save, and that God, you may come, and we know that you are a God of mercy. God, we are thankful this morning that we can come to you and I pray, God, that you would convict our hearts of any sin, of, of any ways that we might be disobedient of you. And God, even when you strike with that, in the same way, thank you that we can meet a God of mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.